Well, good morning. By nature, I am not the most patient person in the world. Now, those who know me the best, like my wife and my kids, that comes as no surprise to them. Uh, the saying, waiting is the hardest part, is true for me. I struggle to wait on someone or something. Now, by the grace of God and the faithfulness of my wife, speaking truth into my life over many years, I am growing in this area, and God has used the last few years and some challenges in my life personally, emotionally, relationally, career-wise, financially, to help me grow in this way. But I'm not where I desire to be, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this. I'm sure there are many of us here that struggle with waiting. Now, in light of this truth, I find myself fascinated by stories of men and women that evidence incredible moments of waiting or periods of time where they wait or they're patient or they persevere through something. Like Captain America, right? I know you were wondering, where was I going to go today? This is my last time to talk about heroes. Well, who was I going to work in? I've done Batman and Spider-Man. If you remember last time, it was Wonder Woman. Today, it's Batman, or uh, the first Avenger himself, Captain America. And I don't have his real shield, but I have a fidget spinner that looks like it as well. So what is it about Captain America that makes me so enthralled by his ability to wait? Well, first of all, as a young man, he so badly wanted to fight. Do you know the story of Captain America? He wanted to go and be a part of representing the Americans, but he was too small, too puny, until there was an opportunity for him to be injected with a serum that made him super strong and become a tool, a pop propaganda tool of the United States military in World War II and to become a fighting machine against the Nazis. Only then to be flying a plane and be shot down into the ocean and frozen for 70 years before being discovered floating to the surface, waking up and continuing to protect our world. Now, imagine, I mean, that's some incredible waiting. Patience, yeah, granted, he was asleep most of that time and doesn't remember it, but still, I marvel 70 years you're waiting. Uh, but as much fun as I've had looking at different superheroes and tying them into this series, and be sad to see that time go, I'm much more fascinated by a man who actually fought in World War II alongside not Captain America, but the Allied forces representing America, a man that you may know as Louis Zamperini. Now, Louis Zamperini, I first found out about him, as you'll see in a book by Laura Hillenbrand called Unbroken. Some of you may have seen the movie by the same title. However, the book is infinitely, as is true, infinitely better. It was a book that has become one of my favorite books of all time. I couldn't put it down. It's enrapturing. And I highly encourage you to read the story of a man named Louis. Now, just a little bit about Louis. Louis was an Olympic athlete. In fact, he went to the 1936 Olympics in Berlin and met Adolf Hitler. He was a candidate to actually break the four-minute mile, and he ended up being in a bombardier plane on a rescue mission when he and the 11 other guys were shot down and stranded at sea. Now, three survived in a lifeboat, and for 47 days, Louis and two other guys, one made it 33 days, the other made it all 47 days, floated in a raft in the middle of the ocean. Now, that by itself is unbelievable to me. And as you read the story, you hear of some of the things that he endures in the midst of that. They're shot at, the lifeboat gets holes, they have to patch it up, they're surviving on nothing, they're, they have shark attacks. It, it's unbelievable. You keep turning thinking that that couldn't have happened. That couldn't have happened, and yet he persevered through that. That lifeboat floated an astonishingly uh, far amount of, of, of miles. They say about 2,000 miles it floated during that time. I mean, I just try to imagine wading through that, trying to keep your mind sharp, persevering through that, only to then finally go up on shore and find that you are now on the land of Japanese soil. 
47 days at sea, finally rescued, and what? You're thrown into prison camps. And for two years, he was passed around from several different camps, waiting to be released, persevering through some unbelievable conditions, beatings. Uh, one particular guard really had it out for him, a man that they called the bird. In fact, at one point, after being tortured by him daily in such obscene ways, the bird is transferred to a different camp. Eventually, then Louis gets transferred, thinking, okay, finally, I can go. And who happens to be at this new camp? The bird. I mean, it's just an unbelievable story. And if you don't know the story, I won't give everything away, but he comes back, deals with alcoholism. Through that process, though, he comes to know Jesus and becomes an ambassador for God's grace and forgiveness. What an incredible story of perseverance. If you were here a few weeks ago when I talked about Moses, what an example of godly grit. Now, he didn't know Jesus in those early stages, but God used that process of endurance and waiting and his patience to finally lead him to a relationship with Jesus. And I find that to be so remarkable. So what does that have to do with what we're talking about today? Well, we're in the middle of a series, actually the end, as Pastor Keith said, of a series that we've called Heroes from Hebrews. And since May, if you remember back in May, I started with just talking about what faith is. Remember an umbrella I held and this illustration of a girl jumping off thinking, oh, if I believe it, it will hold me. And we said, that's not what faith is. Faith is not putting our hope and faith in something that's, that's temporal and man-made, but rather it's a gift from God that takes and receives God's word. Faith allows us to receive God's word and then to live it by trusting and believing that God will keep his word. That's what faith. Faith's object is in God, not in ourselves. And so we finish today chapter 11. We've been working through chapter 11 for the last three months. Next week, Pastor Tim, as we launch in the fall, we'll look at the first three verses of chapter 12 as we fix our eyes on Jesus, right? We've taken all this time to look at these heroes, and then we will look to the ultimate hero, Jesus Christ. You won't want to miss that. And all these heroes that have come before, even as we talk about superheroes, there's something about heroes that, that we, are, we long for as people. I do. Like, I want to be rescued. I want to be saved. I want somebody to meet my deepest longings and to rescue for myself and provide me a better future and a hope and to protect me. And that's why I think there's such a fascination in our culture with superheroes is because we all long for that ultimate hero. And the only one who can satisfy us is ultimately Jesus. And so we'll look to that next week. But today we finish chapter 11. And if you've been here at any time, during this series, you know a little bit about the context of the series. But if you don't, let me just give you a quick review. The book of Hebrews is written by someone we don't know exactly who it was. There's something Paul, something Apollos, something Barnabas. There's different uh, reasons behind those thoughts. But for whatever reason, the author's name is not given to us as it is in the other New Testament, New Testament epistles. And so we go on faith believing that God has this for us and he's using this and He's using it to challenge us. And yet the author of Hebrews is talking to first century Christians. Those who have come to know Christ or have, been ex have experienced Jesus. Jesus had come, was born as a baby, he lived, and then he died on a cross. They knew about that. They had personally experienced it or they had heard about it through those who had been there and walked with Jesus. And yet they're now in a place, as we see throughout the book of Hebrews and especially in chapter 10, that they're struggling. Their faith is beginning to get a little bit weak. They're, they're having a hard time, as is true for many of us in our walks with Jesus. Maybe we got saved, we found Jesus, or we made a decision, and boy, it got hard. 
They started to deal with persecution. They started to deal with they, either themselves or those they knew being thrown into prison. They were having their possessions taken away. They were dealing with other kinds of physical and emotional and relational persecution. And it was getting hard. And the author of Hebrews knows this and he's, he's appealing to them, don't give up. Don't give up. Keep the faith. Keep the faith. It's worth the wait. Don't stop. Don't stop. Be patient in this process. And what strikes me through what we see in his, the author's appeal, not only through don't give up, is that he's also saying there's something better. And we're going to see that in these verses today. He's saying you're looking back as we have a tendency to do thinking, if I could just go back to the way things were, it would be better. Like if I could just go back to the old, it would be better. And he's saying, hold on, no, no, no. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is a better high priest. And Jesus is a better sacrifice. So, so don't look back. Look forward. And then he dives into chapter 11. And he gives us this narrative where he walks through different men and women that have evidence, like to me, a Louis Zamperini type faith, although in, in, in God, a faith that was exemplary. And there are things that we can learn from. And so we've taken time to look at Abel and Noah and Enoch and Moses and Rahab and many others through a different times evidenced faith in God that involved waiting. And that's the component that really struck me as I've, as I've enjoyed preaching through some of this series and sitting through some of this series is faith is about waiting. It's not the only thing that faith is, but a huge component of faith is our willingness to trust God and wait. Even if we go to the first two verses of chapter 11, go ahead and turn to chapter 11 in your Bibles with me. If we go back just as a review to the definition of faith, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen, for, it, for by it the people of old received their con- commendation. Right there we see there again, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So the very essence of faith is looking forward to something you don't have. You're not holding out. You don't know how it's going to end fully at that moment or, or exactly what it's going to look like, but you trust in faith because you are trusting in the one who has spoken the promise to us. And so our faith, again, is in God, and it involves waiting. All of us have, have been through or are in or about to go into some period of waiting. Life is full of waiting, and much of the Christian walk and the Christian journey are seasons of waiting. And I have found that at least in my life, and I'm guessing I'm not alone, I would far rather be doing something proactive, I got to get something done, be doing something for God, than waiting on God. And yet much of what we see in God's word is God saying, trust me. I will show you the way. I will do it for you. Not that there isn't some part that we're participating in, but we're hesitant to wait and to trust, and we'll see how that how that lives out. So in chapter 11, we're finishing with those last two verses. And so today, my, my desire is to kind of look at three things that I think faith helps us do that come from these two verses, but also I think summarize in a sense what we've looked at in these previous 38 verses. So the previous 38 verses is the author of Hebrews is making a case to these early Christians. Hold on. I know you're struggling. I know it's hard. But let me give you some case studies of some men and women that you know of, your ancestors, that had deep faith, that waited, that trusted, that looked forward, so that you can be inspired by that to not give up 
And then he comes. We, if you were here last week, we looked at the last few verses of, I think, 35, 36, 37, 38, about some nameless ones. We spent a lot of time talking about ones we know, the Moseses, the Enochs, the, the Abels, but then he gives this list of people that we don't even know that suffered some unbelievable suffering for the sake of Jesus and to not give up their faith. So that brings us, and it's a long introduction, but I think to give us the context again, going into these last few verses of chapter 11. So if you'll look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 39 and 40, the author writes, and all of these, he's referring back to all of these saints that he's, he's referenced, all these heroes of the faith, and all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Now, the beginning of, of Hebrews chapter, or of, of chapter 11, verse 39, when he says, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, we need to look back to verse 13. So go back to verse 13, because we see a very similar thing said in verse 13, earlier in the passage, when, it, when the author says, these all died in faith, he's mentioned a few of the saints at that point, but not all of them, but those that he had mentioned, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. On the earth. So when I first read those verses and I, and I see, okay, all of these folks, though commended through their faith, did not receive what is promised, a part of me is like, man, what a bummer, right? These men and women who evidenced really tremendous, ridiculous, outrageous, bold, tenacious faith, looking forward to what God had promised, didn't even get to receive what God had promised to them. And so initially it's kind of like, oh man, that's kind of that's not how I saw the story going. You read through this, you think, okay, like the, the, what's next? What'd they get? What happened? Well, what they got was a lot of waiting. What they got was a lot of leaving their homeland, a lot of wandering. Again, remember some of the numbers. Enoch, even though he was one who ended up going straight to heaven, spent 300 years walking with God, warning others about the judgment that was coming. Noah took him 100 years to build the ark. That's a lot of waiting. Abraham, 25 years waiting for that child, that son that was promised to him. Moses, we talked 40 years waiting in the wilderness only to spend 40 more years leading an obstinate, difficult, rebellious people. And yet through that, through these intense periods of waiting, their faith was fixed on God, believing that what God said was true, trusting and obeying, that he would bring it to fruition in their lives. And so the author of Hebrews, he's looking back to these saying, I know you're struggling, I know it's hard, and even to us today, while not the original audience, still part of the audience of this passage, the same appeals, I know it's tough, I know it's difficult, I know some of you, though I don't know all of your stories, are going through difficult things right now. Difficult relational issues, seasons of waiting. Maybe it's with your job, maybe it's with a child, maybe it's with a spouse, maybe it's in some other relationship or circumstance in your life, crying out to God. As you've heard me say a part of my own story, going, God, I'm, I'm struggling, I'm feeling panicked, I'm feeling fear. I want my faith to be strong, but I'm struggling right now. What do I do? How do I know that you're going to come through? How do I know that you will do what you said you will do for those saints of all? And the author of Hebrews is really appealing to that audience in the same ways. Trust, trust God. Trust God. So as we've taken time to look through all of these different characters, ultimately it's trust and obey God. And his sovereign timing and his sovereign purposes, it will be worth the wait. And so three things for us today that I think we glean from these verses 
saying that first they didn't get what they had been promised, but the second half of that verse, or or chapter um, verse 40 is, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. What's that have? What what, what does that mean? Without us, why did the saints need us, or those original Jewish believers as well that the audience is he's speaking to, and us? Why why do we need to be in this together to receive the full fulfillment of what Jesus has promised? And that's what we want to pack for a few minutes today. The first thing that I see that faith helps us do, that faith helped these, these saints of old, and that faith helped these Jewish believers in the first century, is that faith helps us look to the promise. We so easily forget the promise that God has given us in our midst of, of waiting and seasons of struggle and trials and tribulations. It's very easy to take our minds and st- our eyes and stop looking to what God has promised us. So what did God promise us? God has promised us himself. He promised us a Messiah. He promised us a Savior back in Genesis chapter 3. When sin has entered the world, we know then that God declares, yes, the serpent has bruised the heel, but his head will be crushed by an anointed one, a Savior that's going to come. And so the saints of old, they held to that promise, believing that there was an anointed one, There was a Messiah. At that point, they didn't know it was going to be Jesus or what that was going to look like or when he was going to come. But they knew that God would send one to live among us to be the Savior of the world. So they looked to that promise. Now, what's interesting is that these first century believers had realized the promise. At that point, Jesus has come. So what the saints of old looked forward to and, and trusted that God's word and the promise that he made would come true, and they were willing to die for that, those first century Christians had the opportunity to see it played out. They knew that Jesus had come. They knew that the Son had come. Emmanuel, God with us, had been born, lived, and died, and ascended into heaven. The promise had been fulfilled, and yet they were still struggling. That's easy for me to be kind of hard on that and to think, oh man, seriously, Jesus had just been there. You heard about it. You saw it. There were eyewitnesses accounts and you were struggling with that. And yet even today, having the whole counsel of God, knowing how the story has has been, past, present, and well, it will go in the future. I still struggle to hold fast to that, to wait, to trust that God will do what he says he will do. Remarkably, even some of these first century Christians we're starting to believe that they could still have faith even if they abandoned Christ. See, part of their thinking was, even, even if we don't follow Christ, if we follow the, the religion or the faith of, of those Old Testament saints, if we have that kind of faith, then wouldn't that be better? Wouldn't it be better if we went back to the way things used to be, to that, that old-time faith and, and back to the sacrificial system? Because wouldn't that be superior? Wouldn't that be better? We want to be like these heroes, right? So the author of Hebrews very clearly wants to dispel that notion by saying, "Uh uh-uh. No, we're thankful for those who have gone before us. We are thankful for the faith that they exhibit and the models and examples they are to us. But they all died not having realized what you now have access to, personal relationship with the creator of the universe, the son of God himself. And he's saying, it's not better. It's not better. What's better is what you have, Jesus. Yeah, to hit me, I, I, things haven't changed that much today. How often are we prone to look back and think, boy, if I could just go back, if things were the way they used to be, or at that time, or that season of my life, or that type of religion I used to have, or whatever it may be, it's, it's, we're constantly struggling to look back. 
and to settle for something far less than what God's offering us today. So if the promise is Jesus, why is that better? If they were looking to the promise, and we today are still looking to the promise, and we're hearing that we have the promise fulfilled in Jesus, why is that better? Because Jesus did away with all of the sacrificial system. He became the sacrifice. No longer was there a need to enter into the courts, into the temple, into the innermost parts to to plead for forgiveness from the blood sacrifice of animals. At this point, once for all, Jesus became our sacrifice. That's what the saints longed for. They longed to have their sins be removed once and for all, and they looked toward that promise that we now have available to us today. Some of you have received that. Some of you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, have understood that the promise that God has given us in Jesus is worth giving your life to and making him Lord of your life. Others have not. Others are still struggling, holding on. Maybe it's some way you were raised in a different religion with a different set of of rules. You say, you know, it would be easier if I just kind of, I'm just going to stay within the box. It's easier if I kind of know the boundaries in the box and it's just simpler that way for me. It's cleaner. That's really what a lot of these, these first century Christians were wanting to do. Let's just go back to the way it was because then you know what? Maybe they'll stop persecuting us. Maybe the, maybe the Jewish leaders of the day, they'll leave us alone and, and stop persecuting us for, for following Jesus. If we just go back and, I don't know, it's kind of the same faith as the, as the saints before me. So maybe if I just go back to that, things will be okay. And the author of Hebrews is saying, no. They didn't get the reward. They didn't see the fulfillment of the promise, but you do. So you can't go back. There is no going back. There's only going forward. There's only the better offer of Jesus. And that's still true today, my friends. There is no other option. There is no other way to be reconciled to God through Jesus himself. There is no other sacrifice that can take away our sins and create a way for us to have a personal relationship with the ruler of the world. There is no other way. Not only is it better, it's the only way. And so the author of Hebrews is wanting to say to us, implying through this passage, is, is if, if the Old Testament saints didn't get what they were promised, and, 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 and they were still looking forward, and, and yet they were willing to die for their faith and sacrifice it all, how much more for us who have God's word, the whole counsel of God, who know how the story ends, who see how the promise is being, being fulfilled, and have Jesus, and have relationship with Jesus. One of the applications that I think comes from this point of looking towards the promise is this idea is that faith is ready to sacrifice present comfort for future reward with Christ. We've heard that theme all throughout the series. We see men and women that are willing to sacrifice present comfort for future reward with Christ because they're looking toward the promise. How much more for us today knowing that Jesus is real, that he did come that we have access to relationship with him. I'm not saying that's easy. I'm the first to say I like comfort. Seriously. I, I mean, I am, want to be comfortable. And I spend a lot of my life trying to create comfort in my world. We all do. We are creatures of comfort. And to a certain level, that's okay. There's a certain survival to that and kind of how we're wired. There's, there's a part of that's okay. But what we hear in these verses is look forward believing that it's worth sacrificing some of the comforts of this world for future reward because it's far what? It's far better. It's so far better. And even though we can look towards the promise and we know that Jesus is the fulfillment of that, we still wait though, right? 
We still wait because we're in this what theologians like to call an already not yet. Are you familiar with that term? Have you heard that phrase before? Already not yet. Meaning, already have we, have we seen the perfection of Jesus through dying on the cross and the access to him and relationship with him and his glorification of the Son. And yet the ultimate fulfillment, the culmination of that is still to come. So we live kind of in this tension between two worlds. Live between two worlds. We live on earth. We're aliens and exiles, as Abraham said. I'm an, I'm an exile. He lived that way, longing for a permanent home, longing for foundations, right? He, he didn't want to live in a tent anymore. He was looking forward to that heavenly dwelling where there would be no more tents, no more sand. Can you imagine that, right? And yet full relationship with Jesus. And yet we're not there yet. We still live in a broken, fallen, sinful world, deeply in need of God's grace and his forgiveness on a daily basis. And the temptations are many to hold on to our comforts, rather than look toward the future. In order to do that, faith also helps us live with patience. The second point, we live with patience. Faith gives us the ability to, again, receive God's word, believe that it's true, and trust and obey that he will make it happen. And in order to do that, you must wait. And I'm, I'm guessing there are a whole lot of struggling waiters in this room, just like I am who struggle to wait in any way, but especially to wait on God. And yet I can't get over the fact, as I've looked through chapter 11, as we studied this passage, as I know how God works, God works through seasons of waiting. You see, we tend to be a people that are in a hurry. Just drive anywhere in Chicago, right? All right, and we're in a hurry. It doesn't matter where I'm going, what I'm, what I'm, I'm in a hurry. If I'm in the line at the grocery store, if you're like me, right, you're, you've, got, you've got a systematic plan of trying to figure out which line's going to go the fastest, right? It doesn't matter where we are. We're constantly in a hurry, and yet our God seems to be very unhurried in how he works. You notice that? We act very rushed. He never seems to be in a rush. I'm not saying he's slow or you know, unnecessarily slow or deliberate, but he's slow in all the right senses, knowing that there's a process to this journey, that our faith needs time to, to grow and to develop, and he uses seasons of waiting, like these Old Testament saints, to grow and develop our faith. And you cannot be a follower of Jesus and not go through seasons of waiting and not understand the need to persevere through those. To have that, as I like to call it, the godly grit, a willingness to stick with it and to say, you know what? God, help me. Give me the faith to persevere. I don't have it in of myself. But like those Old Testament saints, God, help me persevere. Help me have grit. Help me be patient and trusting that what you're doing will not be wasted. It wasn't on the Old Testament saints, even though they were willing to die. They were willing to give up their comforts and their life. It was worth the wait for them. Again, I struggle with this shared some of my story at different times in the last few times I've preached and this whole idea of like, God, this just doesn't seem to make sense. Like, I was willing to wait a little while, but now it's okay, it's, it's kind of, now we're ready. Like, let's get going now. What's the next step? And that's how we often operate. It's like, how fast can I learn it and how can I move on? And God goes, I have so much for you. I don't need you to do anything. I need you to wait on me. I need you to trust that my timing is perfect, that my ways are best, and that I am sovereign over all things, even the things that don't make sense, especially the things that don't make sense. You know, a prime example for us that we've seen through this series and beyond are the Israelites. Not so much a positive example most of the time, but more of a, a negative illustration of what it looks like not to wait on God. 
And I'll be honest, I, I align and identify and resonate more times than not with the Israelites. Not with the saints. I'm prone to complain. I'm prone to wander. I'm prone to think, God, you brought us out in this wilderness just to leave us die? Man, it'd be so much better if we could go back. At least we'd have food, right? Yeah, we'd be slaves and oppressed, but we'd have food. I found that in my own journey. God, you did all this just to lead me to this place? Man, just the other day, I was like, I should have not even done certain, something that I, I, should, I told my, my wife that the other day. I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have even done it this way. Right? That's, that's a lack of faith speaking. That's a, that's a saying, God, you really aren't able and capable to follow through on the plan you put me on. And my faith is weak. And, and, and I vacillate like we all do. Right? We do. I have moments of peace and panic and faith and fear, and that's part of the journey with Jesus, but a longing to be able to trust God and take him at his word. The Israelites had seen God do some amazing and miraculous things, hadn't they? And yet time and time again, as we read through Exodus and we read through the Psalms, their unbelief gets in the way. God provides for them by parting the waters, and they walk through the Red Sea, and not long after that, they're worried about how are we going to eat? What are we going to wear? What are we going to do? How, why did God leave us in this way? Why, why isn't he provide? Why do we have to keep waiting? And they complain and they murmur. And their unbelief comes through and they're disobedient. And what do we see? God continually comes back and shows grace. When they, when they seek forgiveness and repentance, God shows up and provides for them. He is slow to anger. He is patient with our disobedience. But we must persevere, and faith helps us live with patience. Uh, one of the applications that comes to me through this process um, comes uh, in this idea that faith trusts and obeys God, leaving the results to his sovereignty. This idea of living with patience is that faith trusts and obeys, leaving the results to his sovereignty. One theologian put it this way. He said, some trust and obey God, and he grants spectacular results, like an Enoch or a Moses or a Noah. Others trust and obey the same mighty God, and he enables them to endure horrific trials in his strength. Like some of the nameless men and women we have in chapter 11 who were sawed in two, tortured, put to death by the sword. The difference is not in the people or in their faith, but in God's sovereign purpose in each situation. We know the same God that these Old Testament saints knew, and we have even more in that we know Christ personally. So we should trust him as they did, whether he chooses to put us to death or deliver us from death for a while. And that really struck me because I was preparing this week and I got the news of Dave Heidel. Now, I don't know Dave as well as maybe some of you do, but in my time here at Village in the last year, Dave's been just a, a tremendous source of encouragement to me. Dave mostly was out at our Shabbat Indian Creek campus and I would be out there preaching and just love my times with him. So when I got the word that he had died, there was this part of me this week that was kind of like, man, that doesn't seem fair. I'll be honest, that, I was just, man, I was really taken aback. Here's a man that has devoted himself to, to serving men in prison, to caring for the widows, to serving as an elder, to preaching God's word, and at 68, I believe he was, God took him from this life. And yet I had to go back to this to be reminded that faith's about trusting and obeying, trusting God's sovereign purposes, even, especially when it doesn't make sense. Because just like those saints, spectacular moments of faith, they still all died looking to the promise. Most of us will still die unless the Lord returns looking forward to the promise. Living with patience and finally longing for the perfect. When we look to the promise and we live with patience, then what also comes, faith helps us to long 
for the perfect. Four different times in the book of Hebrews, we see this, the author used the phrase made perfect. We see it here in verse 40 again, when he says, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Made perfect, meaning they had to wait. They were waiting for Jesus. They were waiting for the Messiah. We now have Jesus, and together we will be made perfect in Christ, meaning the glorification of 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 God, the sanctification of the saints, together for glory in heaven for all of eternity. That's a major theme that runs throughout here of this idea that the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. And so part of what faith does, it doesn't just let us look to the promise and know that that's true and give us the strength to believe that in his sovereign purposes. It doesn't just cause us to live with patience. It ultimately gives us the strength and the ability to long for what's coming, to long for the perfect. Christ will return. Peter and Paul wrote extensively of this in different letters that they wrote, this idea the day of the Lord, he will come with a shout. He will return and he will bring home all of those past and present who have received Jesus as Lord and Savior. I was reminded of this, and if you'll turn uh, briefly to 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter writes about this in 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. This idea of that, that God is, is patient and he's waiting and what's coming is far better than anything we've experienced. So 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Peter writes, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a, as a thousand years, and a thousand years as is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. I like that phrase, right? Because I sure do at times think, man, speed it up, God, right? But he's not slow like we view it. A thousand days, a thousand years is like one day. But is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is God's heart. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and all the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, again, God's promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God is patient. God is slow. God longs for every person in this room to be able to come to know him as Lord and Savior. He wants, he wants no one to perish, but rather to, to sanctify the believers, the saints of old, those in the first century, and those of us here today. One day, those of us who put our faith and trust in Jesus, our longings for heaven will be realized. We will be perfected, we will be glorified, and we will spend all of eternity with all the saints, and most importantly, with Jesus. And so it is good to long for that. To long for that. And what we realize, kind of an application through this part, is that faithfulness to Jesus Christ counts more than anything else, even life itself. Even life itself. See, we first application was that we're willing to, to set aside present comforts for the future reward. Second one was that we trust and obey, believing that God is sovereign. And finally, faithfulness counts more than anything else. Friends, if you hear nothing else today or through this series, our faithfulness to God counts more than anything else. 
It's a gift, and God empowers and grants us the grace to do it, but our faithfulness of looking for that promise, our, thank, our faithfulness in living our lives with patience and perseverance, and our faithfulness in longing for the perfect, that counts more than even life itself. Because you know what? As Paul said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know what that means, friends? You know what that means? Is I love that. It's win-win. Do you like win-win scenarios? I like win-win. Like, if I do this, I win. If I do this, I win. Like, that's great. If I was a gambler, I'd only gamble in those ways. I'm not, but I'd only go after. It wouldn't be gambling then, but that's all I would do. Win-win. Okay, that one I get this, win. This one I get this, win. All right, good. That's what the Christian life is for those who have received Jesus as Lord and Savior. It's win. God keeps us here for 10 years, 15 years, 68 years like Dave, win. God's using us. He takes me home early in my life, the middle of my life, or I, like Louis Zamperini at almost 100 years old, when? For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And those old saints of the faith, they got that. They knew, they longed for heaven. How are your longings for heaven? No more sorrow, no more suffering, no more pain. Perfect perfection in all its ways. Heaven will be far greater than anything we can imagine. And our faith gives us the ability to long for what's coming. I don't know about you, but much of my life until a couple of years ago, I didn't do much longing for heaven. That might have been my age, right? I had a lot, a lot of life I wanted to live, things I was looking forward to. Yes, I couldn't wait for heaven in one sense, but you know what? Heaven could wait a little bit. Like, I had other things I wanted to do. I wanted to have a wife and a family. I wanted to accomplish things. God needed to use me. I wanted to be used for God. That could wait. And some of those things are okay. I want to be used by God, having a wife and a family and accomplishing things. There's not, that's not sinful. But over the last few years, through physical struggles and cancer and all kinds of other stuff, my longings for heaven have increased. But I think that there are many of us that, that, that don't long for heaven. That the life is kind of good or we've gotten pretty comfortable. I, I listened to a song. It just came on the radio a few weeks ago. A song by, called Heaven. It's a country song. And I was kind of intrigued, and I'm listening. Here was the chorus. Everybody's talking about heaven like they just can't wait to go, saying how it's going to be so good, so beautiful. Lying next to you in this bed with you, I ain't convinced, because I don't know how, I don't know how heaven, heaven could be better than this. And it struck me, because I've lived life like that. Maybe the circumstance is different, but at times thinking, I'm sure heaven's going to be great, but I don't know, life's pretty good right now. I've created a pretty comfortable life for me. Part of our longings for heaven is going, no, it is far greater than anything that we can imagine. This world pales in comparison. And we need to be careful, be warned, when we find ourselves becoming too comfortable here. And our faith needs to be stretched. And we need to grow. And this has been personally convicting to me. Last 18 months, our family has experienced a fair amount of loss, at least for us. Uh, we lost three grandparents in that time. We had two miscarriages and three cats. So it was a lot of loss, right? And all of those in different ways hit our family and our kids in different, different spots. And through that time, through those seasons of loss, we found ourselves frequently longing for heaven. Loss will do that for you, won't it? It'll make you long for perfection. I can't wait when there's no more sin. I can't wait for there's no more sorrowful tears. No more suffering for, for myself and for those I loved. I can't wait to be with Jesus. And Randy Alcorn has written extensively on heaven, and he wrote a little booklet, and we would, we would read chunks of this booklet at nights, especially at times when our kids were really struggling, feeling the loss of loved ones, because we wanted to focus on heaven. And I think that, that that's what God has for us in these moments. He wants us to think about those longings 
for what's to come. And I just want, on the screen, I just want to read, just take a minute. This, this author of that song says, I can't imagine heaven being better. I want to argue that, you know what, I think heaven's going to be far better. Randy Alcorn writes, heaven is no death, no suffering, no funeral homes. Abortion clinics or psychiatric wards, no rape, missing children, or drug rehab centers. No bigotry, no muggings or killings. No worry or depression or economic downturns. No wars, no unemployment. No anguish over failure and miscommunication. No con men, no locks, no death. No mourning, no pain, no boredom. No arthritis, no handicaps, no cancer. No taxes, amen. No bills, no computer crashes, ah, no weeds. No bombs, no drunkenness, no traffic jams and accidents. No septic tank backups, no mental illness, no unwanted emails, close friendships but no clicks, laughter but no put-downs, intimacy but no temptation to immorality, no hidden agendas, no backroom deals, no betrayals. Imagine mealtimes full of stories, laughter, and joy, without fear of insensitivity, inappropriate behavior, anger, gossip, lust, jealousy, hurt feelings, or anything that eclipses joy. That, my friends, that will be heaven. And that is infinitely better than anything this world can offer. Which is what motivates us to put aside the comforts of this world, to not value them over Jesus, and to say, I am willing to wait for that future reward. My friends, it will be worth the wait. Don't give up. Just like the author of Hebrews to these first century Christians, my appeal to us as we close out this year, don't give up. Persevere, have grit, find your faith in Jesus, make him the object of your faith, look to the promise, live with patience, and long for the perfect. You know, as I wrap this up today, my thoughts, you know, we've, we've spent time looking at the saints, those, the, the Noahs, the Enochs, I mean, just some incredible men and women of God. And yet I still, as we'll turn to Hebrews chapter 12 next week, it starts with, therefore, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses... I gain great encouragement from those saints of old. Tremendous. But I also find great encouragement from those who are surrounding me here today. Some in this room, some of you who have struggled with infertility or waiting on adoption, struggling through marriage issues and are continuing to long and look for that promise, living with patience, day by day, evidencing faith in God that makes no sense to the world around us. I think of Shirley. She'll turn 90 next week. She faithfully cared for her husband for 70 years before he died. She spends most of her days reading the Bible and praying for her family, meeting with people, encouraging them, and writing notes. And she's longing for heaven. She happens to be my grandmother as well. And she's one of my heroes. I think of Jared and Carol, a young couple that's out wanting to reach the places of the world in Papua New Guinea who don't know Jesus. And so they've been preparing to be missionaries. They've spent 11 and a half years preparing for Jared to be an aviator pilot, a missionary pilot, to take the good news of Jesus to places that have never heard of him. After 11 and a half years and the last couple years of intense training on airplanes and studying the language, they found out that no longer can airplanes be used in the area they want to go to. And they have to get trained on helicopters. And it'll cost $75,000 in addition to what they're raising, and yet, as disappointing as it is, they're looking toward the promise. They're living with patience, and they're longing for what's to come, and they're willing to take another day, another step, another moment. And those are just some stories, right? We know so many more, again, of those, even in this room, surrounded by those witnesses, looking to Jesus. Don't ever give up. It will be worth it.